We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, what's up, Roto-Grinders, and welcome to Sharp DFS Analysis here on Rotogrinders.com. Uh, my name is Chris Germino. We're back for week 15. We've got the full crew back. I am the Brett Hunley of this crew. My name, like I said, is Chris Germino. And joining me, we've got the Aaron Rodgers of our crew, Warren Sharp, back this week. Warren, what's going on? I, I am rocking the Aaron Rodgers-esque mustache, I guess. Um, I, I'm doing great. Happy to be able to talk again and, uh, and do the show with you guys. I'm looking forward to breaking down some games this week. Uh, thankfully, I was able to keep us in playoff contention while you were out. So we'll have to talk about that and many other things this week. And also joining me, uh, we've got uh, the MVP, so to speak, of this broadcast and other broadcasts. As you know, you can find him on the DFS MVP podcast and over on 44.com. He's a senior DFS editor. He's Chris Raybon. Chris, what's going on? What's going on, guys? Uh, can't believe we're almost done with the season week 15, man. It's been going quick. Yeah, running out of chances to get out there and find yourself at the top of a leaderboard. So let's not mess around here. Let's get right into figuring out what to do this week. And, of course, we start off our show every single week uh, with a little bit of talk on strategy. Uh, Warren, it's been a couple weeks since we've talked, but it's the end of the season, like Chris said, and we're going to have to take some different things into consideration as we try to project these totals. Uh, I put out a list to you guys of some things that I think are interesting when it comes to late season. I'll rattle off a couple of them right now. You know, teams that are in playoff contention, teams that are eliminated from playoff contention, teams that may or may not be willing to admit their position on draft seeding. You know, how are injuries going to be handled more or less aggressive than usual? There's contract incentives out there for different players. Are the teams aware of these? Are the players aware of these? How are they thinking about these sorts of things? Uh, there's the idea that the second of two division games has historically been tougher uh, for the team that won the first time. We've Got that sort of axiom out there. Is it real? You know, there's offensive and defensive philosophy changes due to ineffectiveness in the schemes that have happened throughout the year. Uh, cold weather, coaches on the hot sheets. All, all this stuff is out there for the end of the season worth discussing. How do you kind of take any of those things, and you can talk about any of them that you want, Warren, 
you know, which of those things do you actually find most important in projecting totals and maybe talk about some teams that might be facing them? Um, I think the one thing that I really don't look at is contract bonuses and that sort of thing. Um, I, unless it's like rare, rare situations, I don't think any of the teams are going to change their philosophies themselves, you know, from a schematic perspective from the coaching staff on down to account for that. So I really, that's one that I don't really, um, pay too, too close of attention to. Um, obviously you've got the playoff and, and then you've got the non-playoff teams who that's when you really have to focus on these other things that you listed. I mean, the teams that are in contention for the postseason, they, are they locked up? Do they need to keep playing? What do they stand to gain? Like all of those things factor into that discussion. And then the guys that are eliminated, it really does come down to, um, like kind of tone and tenor of the organization. What's the status of your head coach? Is he coming back? How have you been playing of late? I like to look at just league wide, a lot of the trending statistics and metrics um, because, uh, and I build a couple different visualizations up at sharp football stats where it shows you like side by side, what is the year to date number for passing success rate and what is the latest trend number on passing success rate. And I do that for rushing success as well as explosive plays, rushing or passing. That's very useful because you can define, you know, do I just want to look at the last two weeks? Do I want to look at the last three, last four, whatever you want, but you can define how far you're looking and compare recent performance to year to date, obviously accounting for strength of schedule in that as well, which becomes more important when you're only looking at a couple of, a couple of games. But, um, it, it does become a little bit more challenging this time of year. Uh, but I think that's where we gain a little bit of an edge, to be honest with you. I mean, I always do pretty well towards the end of the season. And I think it's because of the amount of work that gets put into this. Um, I, can, I have time to factor in all of these things. Whereas at the start of the season, um, everybody's just looking at it. Every team's motivated. I mean, every, every game's important for teams at first game of the year, their second game of the year, et cetera. Um, now there's so many other factors that play a role. Um, I think your list was, was great. And um, they, they all kind of play into how you're going to define performance, motivation, effectiveness, um, player usage, injuries, of course, um, factor into that as well. And, uh, I think we'll talk about this later, but the biggest team I think that's really interesting to discuss, um, and we will later, is what's been going on with the San Francisco 49ers because that certainly is a much different situation now than it even was four or five weeks ago. Um, so that's that's one with a couple of the elements you listed off are factors in what they're doing, even though they've got a losing record and uh, you know don't really stand anything to gain by winning these games. Yeah, they were last time I looked, they were still favored uh, on, you know, facing the Tennessee Titans, who are currently a playoff team. Yep, sure enough, they're still one point favorites as of this recording. So, geez, a lot to talk about there with the 49ers. And uh, like you said, a lot of the elements I mentioned are going to be worth considering as factors as we start to plan out our decisions when projecting totals. Now, Chris, when you kind of start looking at this from a DFS perspective, is there anything interesting you'd like to add when it comes to these late season considerations? Yeah, I think as we close the season, the division game, the second of two division games is going to be something to watch. And I don't think you can make a blanket statement on 
just, okay, this is how it's going to be. It's going to be a tougher, it's going to be a defensive battle. But one thing I think you do notice is you have to take note of what happened the first time and then think about how each coach and each coaching staff is going to adjust on both sides of the ball. So a lot of times you, if you see a receiver go off, for example, in the first game of two division games, the, the, the coaching staff is going to watch that tape and they're going to kind of find ways to combat that. So it, it, you, a lot of times you see that receiver maybe not have as big a game that second time. So things like that where you have to really ask yourself, okay, what adjustments do I anticipate? And then can this player still have success if the defense makes these adjustments that I anticipate? I think that's kind of the biggest thing as, you, as we close the season because most teams have two or three division games in these last three weeks. So it can help to look back at the first game, but I wouldn't just look at the first game as some people tend to do and say, oh, well, this player had a lot of success in the first game. And so he's a good play and he's going to have a lot of success again. I would actually tend to think toward the opposite. And then if I can convince myself that even if the defense makes adjustments that this player can still have success, then, okay, I'll say, yeah, this player is a good play, but I would kind of start from a skeptical mindset when I'm looking at the last game, uh, the first game of two division games in any given season. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think the, the important takeaway here with this whole section on late season considerations is to just make sure that you are evaluating not just the second or two division games differently than you would have been, just looked back at the first game. You know, there's going to be changes that are going to occur depending on the team's current situation. And you can't just take everything at face value as far as their production allowed to date, or how you think the usage is going to go. You know, you want to take a look at each team individually and determine what their situation is first before determining how similar uh, their performance is going to be uh, next week as opposed to how it was in the past. So let's start taking a look at some of the games for week 15 as far as looking at the Games that could go over the total. That's what we're looking to try to find each and every week. Firstly, we'll take a look at some of the high total games when you look at the board. New Orleans has a massive team total, even though that game isn't tremendously high as a total. New England-Pittsburgh is something that's going to attract a lot of attention, and I think uh, the situation on Monday night, Atlanta and Tampa Bay has a reasonably high total. Could be some points scored in that game as well. You've got Philadelphia and the Giants as a low total game. Miami-Buffalo, Houston-Jacksonville, Baltimore-Cleveland. Those are you know, 41 and below type totals as far as what I'm looking at on the board right now. Somewhere in between there, there's a bunch of other games, guys. So we got to figure out which of these games, whether high or low total, is actually going to exceed the total. That's going to help us try to find some value out there on the marketplace. Warren, what do you got this week? Uh, one game that I targeted early on in the week um, was was uh, the Carolina-Green Bay game. And um, obviously that game – only a couple spots had this line up um, at, the, at the very start because we weren't sure what's going on with Aaron Rodgers. But then a couple other books started to open up the, the number. And what we saw, I believe, uh, let's say Friday, he, he announced it on, was it Tuesday night, very late in the evening that he was coming back. So um, Tuesday in the more, in the mid, mid to late morning, I believe, um, the line started getting hit. It started getting bet towards Carolina. Carolina uh, went from a three-point favorite up to a six-and-a-half-point favorite at some of the spots. Others stopped at six. And the total moved from 45 down to 
44 and a half and at some spots 44. Um, and obviously this is an indicator of one or two things. Either somebody knows something um, and, and they're betting based on what they actually know or they are forecasting that this could happen and if they bet Carolina now, then they can come back and take Green Bay later and have a really nice uh, middle or edge in, in, in terms of the line value that they got. Um, so that's, an, that's obviously what ended up happening. Um, Aaron Rodgers announced on Instagram really late in the evening, I believe it was like around like 10.30, 10.15, um, that he was, he was coming back. And um, I notified uh, some of the guys that I work with uh, look, I'm going to keep you guys posted on this game because at 44 and a half, even I said, there's 44s out there. I would go uh, as high as over 45 right now. Um, if, if Aaron Rodgers announces that he's back, we're jumping on that over as soon as possible. And it actually played out perfectly because it wasn't as if Adam Schefter broke the news and everybody got it at once. Rodgers just posted it on Instagram. And uh, being that I was stationed here working and, and watching the whole thing unfold, I was keeping these guys abreast as to what we were going to do. And I said, I'm not going to text you. I'm not going to message you. I'm going to call you because we need to act like immediately once it happens. So as soon as I saw that Instagram, uh, we got down, grabbed a little bit of 44 and a lot more 44 and a half. And, um, and, and of course, then the line, after about 15 minutes of it being out there, got taken off the board pretty much everywhere and was reposted the next morning. And this is almost the more interesting aspect. They reposted it at 45 and a half with the Carolina Panthers being favored by about two and a half points. And I'm going into a lot of like line information here and uh, not really relevant to what DFS plays or anything like that you're making, but just an interesting backstory on this game. They, so they adjusted the spread from as high as six and a half for Carolina all the way down to two and a half, which is a four point swing through the key number of three, but they only moved the total by one point from 44 and a half to 45 and a half. And I thought that was absolutely absurd. Um, so I talked to these guys again and we got down again at 45 and a half. So the line now sits at 47. Um, 47 is a more fair number. I do believe that we could see a little bit better number closer to game time with the way that a little bit of money's coming in here on the Carolina Panthers, which would slightly be more correlated towards the under in my view. I think that if you wait, you could get a, a better number and be able to take that over the total. Um, what is to talk about this matchup? Well, there's a few, few key elements here. The first one is, what is the impact of Aaron Rodgers? And it's obviously massive. But as sports bettors, a lot of times what the professionals like myself will do is we will try to fade the public consensus and look to back a team who is who has just lost their starting quarterback, who now has a backup coming in. And I think some people on the DFS side do this as well. We try to talk up oftentimes some of these backup quarterbacks. Um, there's a lot of a lot of people in the in the sharper side of the sports betting industry that will back these backup quarterbacks, and we'll talk about. Well, Brett Hundley's been in the system for three years. He knows this offense like the back of his hand. Um, he's got he's got legs. He's a mobile quarterback. I'm sure they're going to run with him. Uh, they're probably going to go up tempo, do some things to keep the defense guessing. 
you know, there's, there's a lot of edges in this matchup. Uh, maybe the Saints aren't quite for real. Um, and so when he first started that game week seven against the Saints, all the sharp money was on the Packers. And of course, they lost, the Packers lost at home. They didn't cover the spread. And Hundley did not look good for the next several weeks. Um, so, you know, at this point in time, we're looking back and now people are still trying to say, well, Hundley really wasn't that bad. He really adapted to this offense and he was really coming along. I don't know. I mean, Aaron Rodgers, maybe he's not quite 100%. And, and to me, the reality is this. There's nothing wrong with Aaron Rodgers' legs. He was doing tons of cardio and get it. he stayed in game shape. So he's going to be fine. Is his arm okay? I think his arm, I mean, everybody's saying that his arm looks insanely great, fresh, uh, popping, and, and in a good way, not a broken way. Um, you know, the ball is just leaving his fingertips and sailing. So I don't think there's going to be much of a downgrade in terms of him. Oh, is he 75%? Is he 80%? I mean, they said that if he's playing, he's going to play the way that he always does. And it's interesting. There's two main things that I think play into this from the Packers side of things. The first one is red zone efficiency. Uh, people probably don't remember this, but through the first five weeks of the season, which Rodgers got injured on the second drive in his sixth game of the year um, against the Vikings, in those first five games, the Packers were converting in the red zone at a 79% clip. Now, this is not just like two games. This is five games. And it's not just they're not making many trips down there, so uh, 75, you know, 79% is a little skewed. They were making trip after trip, like sometimes five trips a game and they're converting at 79% rate. To tell you how crazily insane that is, not only was it wide, far and away the best in the NFL by a wide margin, but because of what Rodgers did, Hundley, even though he's played in, I think it was the, it's the last was it eight games he started or, or played in the last eight games, played most of the Minnesota game. Even though he's only converting at a 50% clip, which is not very good in the red zone, the Packers still rank number three on the year in the red zone, thanks to those first five weeks with Aaron Rodgers just destroying all the other teams offensively from a conversion perspective. Um, it's decision-making. It's quickness of release and quickness of decision-making. It's timing and it's uh, play calls. Rodgers dominated that in the red zone, and that's something Hunley has yet to master and that's going to be a big reason why I think the Packers ceiling is significantly higher from a total perspective with Aaron Rodgers in there. And number two is the deep passing. I mean, it's, it's not even close. Uh, Hundley, I think was like at a 67 passer rating on passes 15 or more yards in the air and Rodgers was over a hundred. Um, the yards per attempt Rodgers was at 17 on passes that travel 15 or more yards in the air. Hundley was at nine. So Rodgers' like, efficiency from that perspective it is so much better. And if you look at the Carolina Panthers, and um, I mean, look, I'm not saying this is like a walkaway victory for the Green Bay Packers. I think it's going to be a great game. But if you look at the Carolina Panthers and you look at you know, some of the good offenses that they faced, um, with the exception, the lone exception of the Atlanta Falcons, which that game – you know, Atlanta's been up and down. I mean, they, they, they've been a team, when they played the Carolina Panthers, they were just starting to get Julio more incorporated. If you remember, we talked about on the show how 
Atlanta turned it around, started throwing the ball really deep down the field on first down, targeting Julio Jones a lot more. Um, so they had a lot of struggles in the first half of the season, and they weren't fully, quote-unquote, righted at that point in time. But if you look at all the other teams that Carolina has played with good offenses, talking about the Patriots, the Saints, um, the Eagles, the Saints again, and, and even the Vikings last week who, let's face it, that game, they had so many offensive line injuries. Uh, you, you got uh, the quarterback running for his life. Um, with that exception, they put up 24 points. All these other games, basically these teams are putting up 30 on the, green, on the uh, Carolina Panthers defense. Um, and, and having a ton of success doing it. So I think Green Bay is going to have some success here offensively. I don't think this pack, uh, sorry, the Carolina Panthers secondary is playing as well, especially on deep passes. Um, and the other brilliant thing here that Green Bay's got going for them, sorry, this is like an extended cut here, but um, I, I wasn't able to talk to you guys last week, so hopefully you forgive that. You, you got the Green Bay Packers. Remember what this team was like last year they were just pass on every down. Like they had no run game. Aaron Rodgers had no balance from this offense. What they've become is the third best rushing team in the NFL. It's on the backs of some rookies, but they're run blocking great. They've got a much more physical attitude with this team. And if you think that Aaron Rodgers coming back to now open up deeper passing off those runs or have the DBs sag back even more to lighten up the boxes and allow even more rushing efficiency is not going to help the Green Bay Packers offense in totality. I'm not sure what to tell you, but that is definitely going to play a role in how good Aaron Rodgers looks here now that they've established this really strong rushing game. Um, now, on Carolina's side of things, a lot of opportunities as well. This Green Bay Packers defense is severely overrated. The, the, the Cleveland Browns put up 21 points on these guys and basically didn't even target their best player in the second half. I mean, Josh Gordon, I mean, it's, it's laughable what this offense is doing in Cleveland right now in terms of are they even caring to win games. But to not target Josh Gordon much in the second half was a travesty. At any rate, Cleveland basically put up 21 points on these guys in a half more or less. Um, the Steelers put up 31 with relative ease. Uh, the, the, the Baltimore Ravens even put up 23 points back before Baltimore was even playing all that well. Um, so this Green Bay Packers, they, they got some injuries in their secondary. I think Carolina is going to have some success offensively in the passing game. Um, I've always called Cam Newton a major front runner. And if you can't get pressure on him early and, and kind of throw him off his game, he's not going to perform quite as well. And right now, the Green Bay Packers, um, they have been somewhat successful in their pass rush, but I, I trust Cam Newton's ability in terms of being one of the uh, few sort of mobile quarterbacks. If you look at the slate that, um, that Green Bay has faced this year, with the exception of uh, Russell Wilson in week one, they're playing a lot of stationary pocket passing type QBs. Uh, I think Cam's going to have some pretty good success here. We know that Don Capers defense traditionally struggles with rushing quarterbacks. Colin Kaepernick ate them alive for a number of years. Um, so I, I think there's opportunities for Cam to run. I just think that um, there's a lot of opportunities and edges for both offenses in this game. Yeah, I mean, just a couple of things. You mentioned you're early in the season, the Packers having success in the red zone. That was thanks to Jordy Nelson, who now gets his baby back. Uh, six touchdowns in the first five games for Nelson down there in the red zone for the Packers. And that's going to like 
like you said, support their potential efficiency with Aaron Rodgers back making those second reaction plays down that area of the field. Uh, Carolina, you look at target rate by position on sharpfootballstats.com, looks like they're about fourth most to the wide receiver position. So targeting these wide receivers at Green Bay could once again pay dividends if the, you know, if the historical trends hold true here as far as where they will be targeted in the past game. And then you mentioned Carolina also potentially having some success here in the passing game. Devon House probably not playing this week. I didn't think he was going to play last week. Of course, Demarius Randall's, we know, not fit to hold Josh Gordon's jockstrap. Uh, that would potentially put Devin Funches in a potentially good position here or Demir Bird, depending on who gets lined up with him. Or, you know, you also got like Josh Hawkins back there. Uh, you've got Morgan Burnett uh, maybe potentially covering the slot here. It just looks like a pretty good situation all around for these passing games in this game. And, I, and I'm all, all on board with this take here that this has some potential to go over, certainly 45. And you mentioned now even at 47, there could be some value there too. Chris, what do you think here? What, what's a game that you like this week that could go over the total? Well, it's a game that's going to go over the total. Honestly, um, the game I kind of sent you guys before was a game I thought the total was off actually in the other direction, which was the Redskins and the Arizona Cardinals. I think that game is probably a good bet to go under. Um, you know, Washington has struggled on offense, it not, has failed to score 20 points over their last two games, kind of banged up on the offensive line. Trent Williams not practicing. And then for Arizona, they just put their left tackle on the injured reserve, Jared Velda here. And he was their best offensive lineman among a group of really poorly graded offensive linemen by pro football focus. So I think that's a game that will go over the total. But I, I can go ahead and jump into a game that I, I like the favorite. I mean, I like the underdog in this game, but I also think the game, um, because of that, has a chance to go over the total. And that is the... Los Angeles Rams going to Seattle. I don't think that going to Seattle is going to be as tough as it once was for opponents considering the state of Seattle's defense. You have no Richard Sherman. You have no Cam Chancellor. Now you're, it's looking like K.J. Wright is not going to play this week. He's a key piece in the middle for them. And also Bobby Wagner might not even play. He's going to try, but we don't know – how healthy he's going to be even when he's out there. So I think the Rams, they're getting Robert Woods back this week. Let's not forget that he was their leading receiver. So that's actually a big piece that the Rams are getting back. And in the first meeting, it was a 16-10 game that the Rams lost, but they could have easily won that game, turned the ball over five times, outgained the Seahawks by over 100 yards in that game, but just happened to turn it over a bunch, including Todd Gurley fumbling out of the end zone right at, at the one-yard line for a touchback. So I think the Rams are a team that you don't want to sleep on. I, I, I don't think Sean McVay is going to allow them to score 10 points against a team twice, especially against a team that's significantly um, more banged up than they were earlier in the year when they met the first time. So I think you, you can maybe have a sneaky good game for somebody like Jared Goff. I think Robert Woods is in a good spot. He going to get to run some routes on Sherman's vacated spot. Byron Maxwell has been there. He's been struggling in there. Um, you know, you still got Sammy Watkins. You still got Cooper Cup. And, of course, you have Todd Gurley, who, uh, you know, he's kind of proven that, that he can produce in any given matchup against any defensive front over these past few weeks has faced some tough matchups, and he's produced. So I think this is a good spot for the Rams, and I think they can score – some points and we know Seattle is going to be able to score points 
Russell Wilson has just been incredible over these last eight, eight, nine weeks Four, uh, th- excuse me, three touchdowns for Wilson in each of his past four games. So I think you can almost count on Seattle probably scoring at least 20, 21 points. And I think the Rams can score uh, more than they're implied to by the uh, betting odds. Yeah, it's a good call there. Uh, I think I saw a note earlier this week that Sean McVay thinks he doesn't have Todd Gurley involved enough in this offense, which was a surprise to me since he's the number one dominator rating on playerprofiler.com as far as his percentage of his team's workload. So, geez, uh, we can only hope that if we're Todd Gurley fans, he continues to get him more involved in this passing game. And that is a good call that that's a game that could go over the total here. Let's start talking about some guys from an offensive perspective that uh, we could look at some analytics or some facts to help us support them having a good game this week. Chris, I'll go to you first here. Uh, One of my favorite players recently is on this list, and I'd like you to talk about him because I'm interested to hear what you have to say about what's going on with the Jaguars passing game. Yeah, D.D. Westbrook has kind of taken over that passing game. D.D. Westbrook is a player. I know you like them. I like them as well. I'm going back to the preseason. I think he led the preseason in receiving yardage, had a couple of big plays and just flashed on, on film all, all preseason long. And unfortunately, he missed 10 games, abdominal injury. But in his four games back, since he's been activated, you know, Marquise Lee had previously been that number one option with Alan Hearns kind of not playing as much with struggling through some injuries. So, but in the four games with Westbrook back, Westbrook had 26% of the Jaguars targets and Lee only had 21%. And Westbrook also had 36% of the team's air yards compared to 27% for Lee. That's per airyards.com. So I think when you look at that, and you've seen Westbrook pretty consistently lead this team in usage over these past four weeks, and he has eight targets or more in three straight games. He's caught five passes or more in three straight games, and he's going against the Houston Texans and they've just really struggled at the cornerback position all season long. They rank uh, 29th in schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed to wide receivers. So that means they're giving up the fourth most points schedule adjusted to wide receivers. And it's just, it, they're also giving up a lot of uh, uh, plays down the field. They're one, they have one of the highest average depth of target against in the league. I think we talked about that earlier this year on the podcast. I think we were targeting Sammy Watkins against them. So you know, this is a situation where you could see Westbrook make some big plays deep, but even if he doesn't, he's still been getting that consistent usage in the short and intermediate range where at his salary, there's a, a good floor and, and, and a, a good potential for some ceiling as well. You talk about 36% share of team air yards, and maybe not everyone knows what that means. So let me help translate that for those of you who aren't really into the air yards or really understanding who that puts him in company with. That puts him in company with guys like Thielen, Hilton, Funches, Marvin Jones Jr., Devontae Adams, all guys that are having excellent seasons for their respective teams. So just to give you some context, that doesn't really mean anything other than the fact that he's being used in his offense in the last couple of weeks the same way those guys have for the season been used in theirs, and those guys are all having great NFL seasons. So hopefully that will translate to production down the road for D.D. Westbrook, and that we think that Air Yards is a pretty good indicator of that. Um, Warren, when you take a look at guys on offense who, in DFS, 
know, we like to, a lot of people like to play cash games, and we're looking for guys who we can rely on for the high floor production. Uh, who have you looked at as far as someone that we can rely on with some safety this week? Um, I, I think the biggest – well, one of the biggest slam dunks has to be Le'Veon Bell. But the reason why – I mean, he's obviously priced accordingly, so let's, um, you know, let's not pretend like we're finding some diamond in the rough here. But um, I think one of the – the reason why I wanted to talk about him during this segment is because I find this decision to be the singular most important decision for any team um, – this weekend in terms of uh, in a big game, what they choose to do offensively, which would change whether or not this team wins or loses. And personally, I feel like if the Pittsburgh Steelers do not change their philosophy drastically over what they've been doing the past month, uh, they will lose this game. But if they adapt to the weakness of the Patriots, um, they will win. And the weakness of the Patriots is by far the run defense. If you look at, again, season-long metrics, the Patriots are 30th and they're 24th against the pass and, and dead last against the run. But we, we don't want to talk about season-long metrics right now. We want to know what current form this team is in. And if you look at when they sort of had a more of a defensive resurgence, which ironically started against a pretty good offense, the L.A. Chargers, back in Week 8, and what they've done after their bye week and since. Um, this is a team that is top five in past defensive efficiency in terms of success rate allowed, and in particular on third downs, where they're only allowing 27% of passes on third downs to convert first down, which is an astronomically low number and is the best in the NFL. Um, it's it's going to be very difficult for the Steelers to do what they've been doing, which has been 72% pass, including 73% when the game is within one score. That's going to be extremely difficult to do against this uh, New England Patriots defense because you're giving up all this efficiency and edge that you have on the ground with Le'Veon Bell, where the New England Patriots are terrible defending the run, not only season long, but also in that recent time span, they've gotten so much better defending the pass, but they've completely stayed consistent with terrible run defense. They rank dead last in the NFL. And in particular, on third downs, they're allowing 72% of third down runs to turn into first downs. Now, 72% of runs turn into first downs on third, 27 like the opposite numbers, just flip the numbers around, 27 versus 72. It's, it's a massive difference in terms of effectiveness. So what does that mean for the Steelers? Well, they have to get into third down situations where they can run or pass. And the best way to do that is to be productive on early downs. And I'm not advocating going 55% run here, but they can't be 72% run. They can't be anything more than, in my opinion, in neutral situations, 57 to 59% pass. Okay, they, they have to be 45% ideally run in neutral situations to have the best chance of success because not only does it attack the distinct weakness of the New England Patriots, but it also allows your offense to chew up the clock, to keep Tom Brady on the bench, to wear down a defense and keep them on the field. 
and to freshen up your defense, which inevitably we, we all see the numbers that Tom Brady's done against the Steelers' defense. It's been incredible. Um, so I love Le'Veon Bell this week in terms of what his ceiling could be. The question mark, and this is what we've discussed on the show numerous times, Chris, is what will the coaches decide to do? Because I have no idea. From my experience, the Pittsburgh Steelers are one of the worst teams at playing to an opponent's weakness. They're one of the worst teams at scheming and game planning, especially in big games. This coaching staff, now Bill Cowher's staff before that and, and, and Bruce Arians and some Ken Wisenhunt stuff, that was a little bit different. But this staff right now is, is, is terrible at game preparation. This is why they always are losing games that they should win against crappy opponents, why they play down to the level of competition against opponents. They simply think, in, in an arrogance in my opinion, We've got great players. We've got Lev Bell. We've got Ben. We've got uh, uh, um, Antonio. We, we've got all these other studs at receiver. We're just better. We'll just do what we do. Let's do what we do. And instead of game planning, and that leads to games like we saw against the Jacksonville Jaguars. If you remember that game, that was the game we said, it's a Lev Bell smash spot. We play the number one pass defense, the NFL's worst run defense, hand the ball off to Le'Veon early and often and have some success. And what ends up happening? The Jaguars do a great job, really try to come down and control Le'Veon in the first seven minutes of that game, hold him down a little bit, and the Steelers completely go away from the run. Ben throws multiple pick sixes, I think like four or five total interceptions that game. And it's, it's, it ends up not even being close, even though the game is within one score in the third quarter. They just completely abandon Le'Veon Bell. They can't do that here. So it's a long-winded way of saying that in terms of breaking down this matchup and saying that I love Le'Veon Bell. I think they're going to use him in the passing game as well. I think his ceiling is really high against a bad run defense. Um, and I also think that because the pass defense is so good for the Patriots, a lot of people don't realize that um, the Steelers could struggle there. It may turn a little bit more to the run, but I'm tempering my expectations slightly. I'm still playing him, but slightly because I don't think the Steelers are going to make the right decision in terms of running him as much as they should. Um, and that could lower his overall ceiling a little bit. I mean, the opportunity to rack up yardage and receptions is extremely high for Le'Veon Bell this week uh, for a couple of reasons. But I, I think that one of the reasons that I'll point out is that the Patriots actually make their opponents start with the worst field position in the league. And that helps them elevate to the worst team in the league in terms of yards per drive, because their defense is really more, bend but don't break. They're actually eighth in points allowed, so they will end up eventually stopping you from getting in the end zone, but they're going to allow you to rack up yardage because they put you in poor field position to start, and then their defensive schematics don't uh, necessarily do well at preventing you from getting yardage in between the 20s, but once it gets down into the red zone area of the field, they're preventing, uh, the well, like you said, deep touchdowns or pass defense while uh, they are allowing some touchdowns. Malcolm Butler giving up seven on the season. They are not overall as a unit allowing a ton of points eighth in the league so uh the yardage and receptions potential here for bell is through the roof and if he can manage to get in the end zone that's where your tournament upside is going to come into play but chris just real quick on levy on bell uh how do you feel about him for cash game builds this week just given uh, what warren and i have just gone over i think on DraftKings, i don't really like jamming him in as much as on Fanduel. i think on Fanduel it's pretty easy to do and I feel better about it there. But on DraftKings, and I've been talking about this in my weekly article, Raybon's Review, that I do a lot, but it just seems like 
unless you have a situation where we had Giovanni Bernard a couple weeks ago, I think 3,100 on DraftKings, kind of that free square, it's been really tough to go with a studs and scrubs approach on DraftKings because they're pricing up a lot of the players that would have normally been, I think, a little cheaper, a little like more value plays, punt plays in the past. Those guys are kind of getting priced up to where it's hard to find as many guys you know, 4,000, 3,500 in that range for even 4,500 that you can feel comfortable out in cash games. So when I, when I build lineups with Le'Veon, I'm not really feeling it as much as when I'm building it with, with kind of more of a balanced running back core and just locking in a ton of volume, but not paying nearly as much for that volume. Because at the end of the day, you know, yes, Le'Veon Bell has the is going to get probably the most volume of the week of any running back, but it all comes down to cost, and you know you don't want to necessarily compromise the rest of your lineup to do it. So, I, I kind of lean towards playing him more so in tournaments where if he goes completely nuts, um, you, that's when you really need him in your lineup. But I think there's kind of other ways if he has just a, a normal, you know, let's say he puts up 20 DraftKings points or something like that. If he has a normal game, I think there's other ways to kind of approach that value at a lower cost well we'll see if the Steelers uh, are able to actually go ahead and follow through with what Warren thinks is the best way for them to attack the Patriots obviously in tournament play if he if they do decide to do that you could be in trouble if you don't own him at least a little bit so uh, there's there's no way around saying uh, Le'Veon Bell is, is a bad idea on most weeks and I would not characterize this week as one of those weeks where it would be a terrible idea in tournaments uh, Let's start talking about the defensive side of the ball and where there could be some matchups uh, to target or avoid based on the defensive analytics that are out there. Warren, I'll throw it to you first. Uh, where have you looked at as a potential uh, spot of interest in Week 15? Um, you know, one, one, uh, one place I'm looking is the San Francisco 49ers because, uh, you know, this used to be a team that everybody would want to attack. Um, they, they struggled to defend the run. Uh, they were very bad at allowing running back passes. I remember one of our really stronger plays of the, of the season was that game where Ezekiel Elliott went out there and just feasted on these guys, and we talked him up on the show um, that week. But the reality, and, and this is where like I, I love doing the show and talking about kind of more, um, like I don't know if it's obscure, but – like holistic discussions as opposed to like specific, you know, details that will help you maybe like just this week. Um, the, the, the reason why the 49ers defense has gotten so much better has been as a result of their offense playing better. And it just talks to how the defense can rest. The defense then looks better. The offense on the other team is forced into doing certain things when you're trailing that you don't have to do when you're winning. So when the 49ers offense was doing absolutely nothing and other teams had a lead, then their whole playbook is open to do all types of things to get more creative against the 49ers. But um, when the 49ers are actually dictating the game, then the opposing team is forced into certain situations. And what have we seen? We've seen this defense look tremendously strong the last three weeks, even, even, um, you know, I'll go back the last three weeks. It's even stronger the last two weeks. But if you look at what they've been doing from a defensive perspective, season long, they rank 26th in passing efficiency allowed to opposing teams. They are allowing 47% success rate. 
The last three weeks, they, they moved that up to 14th in the league, only allowing 43%. But where they've really dominated is on the ground. They were ranking 20th over the course of the season, but the last three weeks, number one in the NFL in terms of only allowing a 36% success rate on run plays. Um, and explosive rushing, they were the worst run defense in the league at giving up big explosive runs to start the year. The last three weeks, they're the fourth best team. They're only allowing explosive runs on 10% of opponents' um, rushing attempts. And, and I define explosive runs by any run that gains at least 10 yards. Um, so I, I look at a situation where normally you would not think twice. I mean, if think about this. If we're talking about like week five, okay, the Titans are going to be obviously favored here. And you wouldn't think twice about rolling out Mariota, and, and Corey Davis and all these other receiving weapons that the Titans had, plus, you know, whichever is your favorite running back that you think is going to do the best in this game. Um, but now you're looking at it and they're slight underdogs and forget even what the line is. The Titans are not playing good football right now. And the 49ers are playing great. And that defense is looking much better than it was earlier in the year. So the takeaway from this is this is a, one of the other reasons I want to talk about this really prime example of looking at trending defensive numbers or offensive numbers as opposed to year-long because it tells a totally different picture when you're talking about the 49ers. And the reason why they've been so much better defensively is because of their offense. This is their first home game that Jimmy G is playing. This is, uh, you know, their first somewhat easier defense that they faced. If you look at the uh, prior two opponents that they faced, um, obviously they started on the road in Chicago uh, who has a very difficult defense um, to go up against. In terms of passing and rushing, I mean, the Chicago offense obviously has its some somewhat limitations, but their defense is very good. And then they played the Texans on the road, who I've been talking down the Texans' defense, but um, that's because people were talking about them as like the top 10 defense. They're not that, but they're definitely better than uh, what Tennessee has going right now, especially from a passing perspective. And I think Garoppolo will have a much better – chance to have success in the passing game at home, which would put Marcus Mariota and the Titans defense, Titans offense in even more stressful situations here. Um, and Mariota is not even quite 100%. You know, he's got a knee issue going on. His hamstring's not fully healed. He just doesn't look right. He's having a horrible season. So um, in what would have been like a smash spot if you circled this game back in September, uh, this has turned into anything but, in my opinion. Yeah, and just from a broader perspective from DFS, I've just noticed over the course of the season that the Titans games have underwhelmed from a fantasy perspective more often than I feel like they've come through with big numbers for the players in that game. So just sort of translating that thought of, well, hey, maybe we should be taking the Titans guys. I don't know about that. You know, Mariota has not shown us the capability that we think he's, you know, at full potential able to produce for us. And we've also seen the backfield underwhelm. There's just a lot of reasons for disappointment in Tennessee from a fantasy perspective. And I don't mind staying away from them. If you think that the 49ers defense is improved, like you say, Chris, where have you looked from a defensive perspective for some intrigue in week 15? I think the new Orleans saints are back in play. They are a defense that I think surprised a lot of people at the beginning of the year and then they went through some struggles because their rookie cornerback, Marshawn Lattimore, missed a couple games. And Ken Crawley, their other cornerback on the outside, was also out for a second. But 
Um, they're they're kind of pretty much back to full health for the most part, uh, except for uh, Okafor, one of their pass rushers. But they should, I think, dominate this game against the New York Jets in New Orleans. Bryce Petty, who will start at quarterback for the Jets, has thrown an interception once every 20.3 career pass attempts. So I think this is a, a real good spot for New Orleans. New Orleans actually ranks sixth in the league in interceptions on defense. So I think they have a lot of tournament uh, turnover, excuse me, upside in this game and a lot of tournament upside. Um, but I think you can play the New Orleans Saints defense in cash games. And I don't think this is a bounce back spot for Robbie Anderson either. Talked about him last week and how we thought he would struggle against the the Denver Broncos cornerbacks. And the Saints cornerbacks are not as good by any stretch of the imagination as the Broncos cornerbacks, at least not yet. But they that is the strength of their defense. And Lattimore has been playing really well. And so has Crawley. So, I think this is going to be a tough matchup for Robbie Anderson. And if you take Robbie Anderson out of the equation, remember Bryce Petty is the, the quarterback who initially made Robbie Anderson a thing. They had that whole preseason uh, bromance going on, and that kind of translated to the regular season last year. But if Petty can't really have success going to Anderson, then it's going to be difficult for the, the Jets to have success on offense because you can bet that New Orleans is going to dare them to throw the ball down the field with Bryce Petty because they do have those cornerbacks on the outside. So, you know, if, if they're not able to have success and they're able to cover up, it's going to, to, to they're going to have more resources to, to, to devote to the running game. And you're going against a very turnover prone quarterback on the road in his first start of the season. So I, I really like the New Orleans Saints defense this week. The line is currently in the neighborhood of 16 right now in that game. So you can project with some confidence that there'll be positive script for the New Orleans Saints, negative script for the New York Jets. And that could potentially lead to a passing potential opportunity for sacks, fumbles, interceptions, the things that we like when we're looking for a fantasy defense. So hopefully that does come to play where we see positive game script for the Jets defense. Now, Warren, time to look at the chalk. It's week 15 and it's not so as crystal clear to me who – you know, all the chalk is going to be yet on a Friday with all the injury news yet to come and with all the discussion yet to happen on these players. But I do have some ideas on who should be pretty highly owned. You know, I think that the quarterback position, like always will be spread, but you'll see a lot of ownership on Russell Wilson, uh, Ben, Cam, Aaron Rodgers, Cam Newton. You know, some of these top-tier quarterbacks, I think, are going to get more love than usual. Uh, I think that at the running back position, you're going to see Kenyon Drake and Le'Veon Bell as highly owned guys, or at least highly owned relative to the rest of the week. Uh, you've got at the wide receiver position, some of those higher total games, I do feel confident that you'll see guys like Antonio Brown, Devin Funches, Michael Thomas uh, get some looks here towards the top end of ownership. And then, of course, uh, at the tight end position, uh, Jimmy Graham and Gronk are the two probably two of the more famous tight ends in the entire league. And I expect that they'll be used at least to some degree this week. I'm not as sure about Gronk's ownership as I am about people maybe looking in tournaments to a guy like Jimmy Graham. So, you know, there's a lot of other guys, obviously a lot yet to be decided from a value perspective who rises up the ranks in ownership. But when you look at those guys who are popular this week, does anyone stand out to you as someone of interest? Um, Yeah. I mean, Le'Veon Bell, obviously, uh, but you know, this comes to like a, a strategy where, um, you, you put him in there, um, and as Chris mentioned, you have to 
really dig deeper to find some other guys to, to fill your roster. And, um, and while I've built a number of them with Le'Veon in there, um, you know, if he has a bad game, then obviously you, you've allocated a tremendous amount to a player. Uh, the other concern with him, you know, he did have like a little bit of a knee tweak and his rushing did not look nearly as great and, and as forceful after that. But from what I've seen in the practice reports, he hasn't missed any time whatsoever. Um, so hopefully, you know, you're assuming that that's okay, but there is that slight caveat that, you know, something, something with his knee could, uh, could be affected if he gets hit again there or something like that. So, um, and, and I won't argue against uh, what Chris, I think Chris brought him up earlier, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with, I guess it's can't go wrong either way saying, I, I think Chris brought it up because you're both Chris, but uh, Devin Funches, I think he's, he's in a great spot as well. Yeah, good call there uh, on, on Funches. Now, you know, the concern is when you look around that passing game, if Greg Olson's not fully healthy, I mean, you know, there's not a lot of options you can look to take away in the passing game. If you're, you know, if you're looking at trying to funnel away from Devin Funches, you could probably try to do it. The benefit is that he is much taller than the people who will be trying to cover him on most occasions. And, you know, he does have that length advantage to where you could throw him open. But uh, needless to say, Funches is in a good spot when you take all things into consideration. Chris, when you look at the chalk this week, uh, any guys that I didn't mention or anyone on that list that you find interesting? Yeah, I think Russell Wilson is always going to be, you know, regardless of what we think is going to be the game script or regardless of, you know, the opponent even. And I wrote about this in my Ray Bonds Review article too, but Wilson has, you know, he put up three touchdowns, put up 24 points, fantasy points against the Jaguars last week. That's the number one defense in terms of schedule-adjusted fantasy points allowed to quarterbacks the week before he went up against the number six defense in Philadelphia. And he also put up 24 fantasy points. He's put up uh, three touchdowns in four straight games. And, you know, on the season, 82% of Seattle's total yardage on offense, 32 of their 33 touchdowns on offense. You know, he hasn't been under 19 fantasy points since the team's week five bye. So, uh, I mean, it's, you know, regardless of, you know, I know I said, you know, I like the Rams in this game, but that doesn't change my opinion really of Russell Wilson and the, the production that I think he will put up because he's proven that he can do it all season long. And it's really, it goes right in with his rushing floor where, you know, 82% of the team's total yardage, you know, Mike Davis, who is playing well for them at running back now, he's a little bit banged up. So it always tends to fall back on Wilson's shoulders. And I also mentioned, I think this game is going to be a little bit more high scoring than the last one. So uh, I, I like Russell Wilson as that chalk quarterback play, even though there are some other quarterbacks in games that maybe look on paper, at least like they have a better shootout potential or, or, or just bigger names. Like, you know, you have, I mean, a uh, big, bigger implied uh, over under, excuse me, like you have the Patriots and the, the Steelers game, but I, I, that doesn't really affect my decision. And I think, you know, I would still go Wilson over somebody like Tom Brady or Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah. And you, and from a defensive perspective, you also mentioned the saints. I think they'll probably be among the more popular defenses this week. And that's a good way to look if you're looking for chalk defenses. It's time to go under the radar though, try to find some value off the board, maybe a little bit less obvious. Chris, who are you looking for off the radar here? Well, it kind of goes into what I just said about Russ, but I think you want to take a look at Paul Richardson in 
in a tournament because Richardson's pretty affordable across the industry. And since week 10, he's tied for the team lead in air yards, the 28% market share of the team's air yards since week 10. That's tied with Doug Baldwin. So you're going to have a situation where you have this quarterback that week in and week out, he's producing at a high level. You have a situation where your defense is getting – seems to be getting worse or just more injury ravaged every single week. So it just increases the likelihood of a shootout. And you have a receiver in Richardson who's just been playing pretty well all season long. I mean, in terms of being able to go down the field and get the ball, make some tough catches in traffic. So, you know, I think you want to look at Richardson, especially with the Rams now are going to be missing one of their outside cornerbacks in uh, Kayvon Webster. So they're going to be a little thin at that cornerback position. And I always like those situations, even if it doesn't directly translate into a, a player matching up against a, another uh, lesser corner. Uh, I think because Richardson is going to move around. He's going to see some of Tremaine Johnson. He's going to see some of whoever they replace Webster with. But I, I just like when a team is a little thin at corner because let's say now that Tremaine Johnson gets hurt or let's say that the, the backup gets banged up in the game. You know, you have even, you have even a thinner depth chart and, and even better matchups. So I think you have some kind of added added upside there. But at Richardson's price, I mean, with, with the kind of leading the team in air yards in a game that kind of could 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 skew high scoring just because you do have two good offenses. I think he has a lot of upside given who's throwing him the ball. And he's probably gonna go pretty overlooked this week. Just, you know, people aren't really talking about, you know, the the, the Seahawks receivers as much with so many other games to kind of target on the slate. Yeah, nice call there. Uh, that's going to be interesting to watch that game. Going to be a big fan from an NFL perspective, seeing what happens there. And the outside receivers are definitely never going to be all that popular for the Seahawks. I think all the attention goes to other receivers in that offense on the vast majority of weeks, and I don't think this week's going to be any different. Warren, under the radar, who you got? Um, well, just one comment on that on that Seattle game, and I don't disagree uh, with Chris's take on Richardson, but I just want to um, – say that pay close attention to the weather because um, while well, I was just checking the latest forecast and during this uh, like six hour time frame from like, I believe it's like 10 a.m. local time to like 3 p.m. Uh, local time or so, um, they're expecting some, which, which would be during this game, obviously the last half of that, uh, they're expecting some pretty heavy rain, not, not even like light rain, but pretty heavy um, soaking rain. But whether or not that actually happens, um, you know, these types of things, you always you always want to be cautious a little bit because these fronts and these systems they can move through faster than what's expected. Um, so it's literally something like the night before you probably would have a, a better sense to it uh, because the thing is supposed to have a little bit of precipitation for for most of that entire day um, in, in that area up until like you know late evening. So it's more so a matter of um, are you going to get this heavy soaking rain? Um, during the game, or is it come before then? Um, but a guy that I was uh, finding somewhat intriguing was um, Jarek McKinnon for the Minnesota Vikings. Um, if you look at what the numbers for like Latavius Murray versus McKinnon were last week behind that somewhat injury-ravaged offensive line that the Vikings are dealing with, um, it, it was very difficult for uh, Latavius Murray to run. I mean, he had nine carries – uh, only 22% of them were successful. It looks like a total of 14 yards, 1.6 yards per attempt. Um, Jarek McKinnon 
seven carries, but a 71% success rate, 46 yards and 6.6 yards per attempt. And uh, of course, you know, the Minnesota Vikings here um, last week, that was against, uh, you know, on the road against a more difficult Carolina defense. This game's at home. The Bengals really have eroded a lot with their defense thanks to some injuries. I mean, we've always said, the key to that defense, stopping the run, is Vontae's perfect. And when he's not there, it's a notable, noticeable difference. Um, you got They're a huge favorite. They're playing at home, um, should have the lead. And because their defense is so good to help limit what the Cincinnati Bengals will do offensively, who are just shut out at home, not shut out literally, but figuratively by the Chicago Bears. So I think McKinnon's in a really good spot um, to be – Pretty productive, of course. He's a little bit more dangerous in the receiving game as well um, with that beat-up offensive line, maybe some auxiliary you know, passes to him out of the backfield on plays that might be designed deeper down the field uh, if the Bengals get some pressure there. So uh, I think McKinnon makes for an interesting play. That's an interesting one. His price is down on DraftKings where you get that full point per reception. They are 11-point favorites at home right now. And we are not looking at 11 point. The running backs, either one of them, from an 11 point favorite team. You mentioned Murray not being able to get much going early in the season. He was dead and buried. I'm not so sure I'm ready to say with confidence that I know for sure that McKinnon is the guy that just gets all the work in this game. But one thing that is for sure is that when you have a team like the Vikings favored heavily at home, if they get out to a big lead, they will probably lean on some of these running backs to get some production later in the game. And if that's the case, then. Uh, surely their ownership is going to be too low for their potential upside. Um, so that's an interesting one where I kind of, I kind of like where you're going there. Uh, Chris, any closing thoughts on this uh, particular episode of sharp DFS analysis? Oh, no, you hit it. You kind of hit it on the head. I mean, I think it's, it's not even just McKinnon. It's Murray Murray too. I mean, yeah, he had a bad game last week, but that that'll happen against the, uh, the Carolina Panthers when you're, you're, you're in that role. But I think in this kind of game, you know, the Bengals, it obviously favors McKinnon as well because the Bengals have uh, just been suffering through a lot of injuries at the linebacker position at that second level, which those are usually the players that are responsible for covering a back like McKinnon. So, you know, that definitely favors him as well. But Latavius Murray, um, you know, he, you know, he's kind of that, he would kind of be that closer and, and he's also that goal linebacker. And anytime you have a home favorite um, a player like that can also flourish, but Kyle Rudolph was ruled out. So you might see the Vikings rely even more on their running game than usual. And um, I definitely think that both of these guys have a lot of upside when you consider that the, they're, they're double digit favorites, as you mentioned, and the Bengals are actually giving up the third most schedule adjusted uh, fantasy points to running backs in the league. So that's something else to keep in mind. Just a really great matchup, uh, as Warren said, for the Vikings running backs against Cincinnati this week. Guys, that's going to do it for the show. Thank you to Warren Sharp. You can find his work, Sharp Football Analysis and SharpFootballStats.com. You can find Chris Raybon, 4for4.com. And I mentioned earlier in the show, the DFS MVP podcast, always a great listen. You can check out Rotor Grinders here at RG Premium. That's where you'll find stuff that I'm working on for NFL. Uh, Get all the sports for one price. I think it's a pretty good deal. And when you combine all of the resources we just mentioned on the show, it's going to be pretty tough for you to have all that tough of a go in DFS if you're listening and learning from all these great minds. Thank you very much for joining us. For Chris, for Warren, 
I'm Chris. We'll be back again in week 16.